0: So we continue on in First Peter, and we're now in the second sermon in chapter 4, and we will finish chapter 4 this morning, Lord willing. Uh, while you're turning there, I will note that in the bulletin, a new feature this week, you can thank the Daniels for this, is that there is a section to take notes with the headings and the points from the sermon and the, the thesis or the proposition, whichever you want to call it at the top. So that is there for you to use or not use, up to you. Uh, but thankfully, it is in the bulletin. So I thank you. I think the Daniels for that. All right. So while you're turning there, let's get a bit of an introduction to the text here. So if you follow the news at all, then you will know that there are some odd legal accusations making headlines right now. A former president has been indicted on many charges while a sitting president is at, is at risk of charges and indictments being brought against him, even of impeachment. And it's amazing how politicized the situation surrounding both of these men has become. And both sides of the political aisle are accusing the other of weaponizing the judicial system in all these accusations. So whether one or both men did wrong, I'm not going to comment on, mostly because I have no idea who or what to believe at this point. But one thing I can say is that neither men can have a truly fair trial. With how politicized things are, I don't think any judge, jury, or elected official can truly give a fair assessment, trial, or punishment. Because just like with everything else in life, no one is neutral on their views. And definitely no one is neutral on their views of these two men or the possible crimes that they committed. And for that reason, neither man can trust any jury or judge to deliberate fairly. And that must be a terrifying position to find yourself in. Now, you could also argue that both of these men have mostly brought it upon themselves, to which I pretty much agree. But it's still a shame that because of who they are, they will not be treated fairly or held accountable justly. And I don't know how things are going to turn out with any of that. But one thing I know for certain is that everyone in the country will be the losers in the end, regardless of the outcome. So while judges on earth can be questionable, we'll say at times, there is a perfect judge in heaven who will hold all perfectly accountable. And we should never place all of our true hope, all of our hope in an earthly judge. But as believers, we must place our hope in the Lord, who is the judge of all people. So the thesis for this sermon is that because God is judge, we must hope in him. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us as we walk through this text, that you would speak your wisdom and your your life-giving grace to our hearts, that you would teach us through your word this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So the first point this morning is looking at verses 12 through 13. I just have a title, Training to Rejoice. So as we arrive at yet another passage on suffering, we might want to ask, why is this necessary? We have talked about suffering a lot already. Peter just wrapped things up well in the first half of chapter four with a doxology at the end of verse 11. So why do we again turn to the topic of suffering? Well, for one thing, we need to be repeatedly strengthened and encouraged in our walks. And again and again, Peter reminds us of the reality that we may suffer for being Christians. So these verses act as a conclusion to the topic of suffering. It's really a summarization of everything we've seen so far about suffering in this book. Peter explained that we are God's holy people who are set apart from the world, but still live in it. As a result, we will be persecuted by the world. He taught us how to suffer under authority in our various relationships and how to suffer for doing good. And notice how the indicatives of who we are is always what drives the imperatives of how we must live and even suffer. So really, chapter four as a whole operates as a magnum opus on how our suffering is connected to our glorious hope of everlasting life. Listen again to the doxology at the end of verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as Peter turns one more time to speak about suffering in this book, he wants you to be 100% confident in your identity as God's precious child. And he does that by opening up opening up verse 12 by calling you beloved. You are beloved by God. Just let that sink in for a moment. No suffering or failure on your part can change who you are. The same God who receives all glory, dominion, and honor is the one who loves you. The Creator God who sits ruling and reigning on His throne is the one who calls you His beloved. In fact, suffering only comes to you because you are God's special people. But beloved, what a what a beautiful reminder in which to ground the rest of this chapter. Well, Peter is going to give us six commands in these coming verses, and each one of them is a result of who you are as Jesus' beloved. And far from being burdensome commands, they are actually an outpouring of God's love. Even your suffering is from God for your good and for his glory. And so the first command in this section is not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Suffering and trials cannot catch us off guard. We've been warned repeatedly in this book that suffering and persecution are necessary implications of living as exiles and sojourners on this earth. Now, you can bury your head in the sand and you can pretend suffering won't happen to you. But suffering will come. And if you do not understand and recognize that, then it's going to be a very unpleasant surprise. But if you are preparing yourself for trials, then you will not be surprised when the trial comes. The chapter began in a similar way in verse 1. Christ suffered in the flesh, and since we are united to him, we must arm ourselves with right thinking, with the same manner of thinking as Christ. Now, Lonnie just preached last week about the spiritual battle going on all around us all the time. Jesus is sitting on the throne in glory, far beyond the reach of the devil. And Satan cannot touch our Lord, but he can assault us instead. And so we should never be surprised when the world hates us or mocks us. Peter told us back in verse 4 that the unbeliever is shocked when we don't join them in their wickedness. Their shock then gave way to anger and to maligning us. But meanwhile, we are not to be surprised at their actions. We are not to be shocked by their anger. Our preparedness allows us to see the bigger picture of what is happening in our suffering. The bigger picture is that God is using the trials for our good. Now, the word for fiery trial is used in other places in Scripture, the same word to refer to a refiner's fire. And there are two references that are especially helpful for this text. The first is from Zechariah 13. And in verse 9, it says, And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And the second passage is from Malachi 3, verses 2 and 3. And it says, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and here's the result. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So the purpose of the refining fire in both of those texts is to purify Israel so they will call upon the Lord by faith. Through the discipline of trials, God trains his people in righteousness to offer up holy offerings. The Lord has a definite purpose in allowing trials to come our way. Therefore, we can learn two things about the command not to be surprised at trials. First, we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us because the warnings in Scripture is very clear that the world will hate us. But second, God allows us to suffer because he can work in our hearts through the suffering. So while the first command we've looked at was a negative command not to be shocked, the second command is going to be the positive command counterpart to the first. So the second command is in verse 13, and it says to rejoice in far as you share in Christ's sufferings. Now, I can bet you that not many people in the world would ever put rejoicing and suffering together, but Peter does exactly that, and he does so because the reason we suffer is due to our union with Christ. Peter explained the atonement and how we are united to Christ back in chapter 2. His perfect life, death, and resurrection, it atoned for our sins. I'll summarize it with chapter 2, verse 24. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ now identifies you as his own, but others will recognize who you belong to as well. Satan and the world see that you belong to Jesus, and they hate you for it. So if the world hates you for being a Christian... Guess what that says about you? That says that you certainly belong to Jesus. Your identity brings a peace with God and the hope of glory in the next life. But here's the problem in this life. Being at peace with God makes you at war with the world around you. But despite that, peace with God is of inestimable value, whereas peace with the world only brings God's wrath. And your inheritance in glory is worth any amount of suffering that the world can throw at you now. So notice the purpose of rejoicing and suffering now in this passage. It is in order that you will rejoice when Christ appears. To suffer for Christ now means that you belong to him and that you will appear in glory with him. Our suffering now acts as a way to train us for glory. As we rejoice while undergoing trials of every, every kind, now, how much more will we rejoice when we are in paradise with Jesus? The ESB says that on that day we will rejoice and be glad. So the, the Greek here describes an overwhelming joy. Other translations say overjoyed. They say exceeding joy. They say great joy. And the point is this. We have part of that future joy now, but one day we will enter into the fullness of Christ's joy. We have joy in suffering today, but soon the suffering will give way to bliss and a far superior joy. But even now, God grants us some of that future joy to sustain us and to prepare us for glory. And so the promise of glory is really seeping back into the present, ensuring us that as we suffer, we will gain the eternal reward through Christ. And as we see that picture, that vision of the glory of Christ, we are emboldened and made willing and ready to suffer for the name of Jesus. Because his is the only name worthy to suffer for. So That takes us to the second point a worthy name, in verses 14 through 16. So in verses 14 through 16, Peter again tells us the way in which we should suffer. He has already explained this in several different ways in this letter. The only way to suffer worthily is to suffer for the name of Christ. Peter says that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That is the one and only good reason to suffer in this life. His name is the Lord. And he has a name that is above every other name. Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name worthy to suffer for. And if you are to suffer for his name, then it has to be for righteousness sake. Suffering for anything other than holiness is not suffering for Jesus' name. The third command in this passage is in verse 15, and it says not to suffer for these evil things. If you suffer as any of these evil things that Peter names, then you suffer unworthily. Peter lists these sins as really representative of living evil lives, of not truly following Christ. So if you suffer because of your own sin and stupidity, then you're not suffering worthily and you're not suffering for the name of Christ. Living a sinful life and suffering for it is nothing more than the deserved outcome of a wicked life. To live just like the world, to belong to it, is to forfeit glory altogether. Believers must live differently from the world. We must live holy lives or we are not truly his beloved. Now, living holy lives will lead to persecution at times. But in those moments, we are suffering for the name of Christ. Now, Peter's fourth command in this passage is in verse 16. And it says that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Not being ashamed is an imperative. It is a command. It is a command from the Apostle Peter not to be ashamed to suffer for Jesus' name. Those trials are not a sign of God's displeasure or condemnation. It's actually quite the opposite. It is a sure proof that you belong to God, that you are his beloved. And the fifth command in the passage really builds on that fourth command when it commands you to glorify God in that name. And the name refers to being labeled as a Christian. Now, the word Christian, the actual word Christian, only occurs a few times in the whole Bible. It occurs in Acts 11. Uh, There we are told that the believers of Antioch were first called Christians for the first time. Though we're not told if they labeled themselves that or if others called them that name. Then you look forward in Acts 26, and King Agrippa referred to believers as Christians. And then the third instance is here in First Peter. And the name Christian simply means a follower of Christ. And Regardless of its origins, we know that unbelievers use the term to mock and ridicule early believers. Becoming a Christian was not a socially advantageous thing to do. It was not what you wanted to do if you wanted to become popular. They were mocked for aligning with Jesus and often considered dangers to the society. And yet Peter takes that term meant to be used against them that was likely used to insult the church. And he tells his readers how to respond to that slur. He says, don't be ashamed of being called a Christian. Be proud of that label and seek to glorify God as a Christian. So far from being ashamed to be Christians... We should treasure the honor of bearing the name of followers of Christ. That is the name worthy to suffer for. And Peter was no stranger to persecution and trials. Peter and the other apostles were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5. And they were brought there because they were preaching the gospel. Go ahead and turn to Acts 5 because I want you to read along as I read. So again, they were preaching the gospel of Jesus to the people in Jerusalem and Judea. And for that reason, they are brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jewish world. And as they're brought before them, it's going to be in the case of a trial. It's going to be to punish them. And remember, once before already, Peter disowned Christ when he was faced with persecution. But Peter and the other apostles, they behaved very differently. In Acts 5, then that first failure. Peter, as the bold spokesperson of the apostles, replied to the Sanhedrin and their requests and accusations. So go to verse 29, and I'll read 29 through 32. Peter says this when confronted and ordered to stop preaching the gospel. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So the Sanhedrin, they heard these words and they were furious. They wanted to kill the apostles. But one famous Pharisee, an esteemed teacher of the law named Gamaliel, who's actually Paul's teacher, convinced them not to kill The disciples. So instead, what they did is they beat the apostles. They told them to stop preaching Jesus and they sent them out. So how do you think the apostles reacted to that last command from the Sanhedrin? Did they give up? Did they go home? No. Look at verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. The apostles were driven on by the overwhelming glory of the Spirit and of Jesus' name. They understood that in order to share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ, they had to bear his name worthily. And to bear the name of Jesus in the world is to bring the wrath of the world and Satan upon yourself. Their view of glory to come was so comprehensive, so overwhelming, that they were willing to suffer and even die if only they could attain their reward. And what we see is a picture of that future eschaton breaking back into the present reality. So if you want the glory to come, you must be willing to endure the momentary affliction of the present. But you are to do so with hope and with joy because the Spirit of God is upon you as you suffer. Way back in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the prophet told of how the Spirit would come and descend upon the coming Messiah. And there the prophet wrote, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and And might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, that same spirit came and descended upon Christ at his baptism. And that same spirit also came and descended upon the apostles and the disciples at Pentecost in Acts 2. And that exact same Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, also rests upon you, the believers of Christ. And it is he, that Holy Spirit, who has applied the blood of Jesus to you. He is the one who has sealed you for the day of redemption. He is the one who strengthens and upholds you through every trial, every moment, every moment of persecution. And he does so by ministering to your soul with small little foretastes of the glory to come. And in so doing, he prepares and sustains you with a joy that cannot be found in this world. And it cannot be found because it belongs to another time and another place altogether. The Spirit gives you the spiritual sight and grace you need to endure each day. It's like a skilled doctor carefully measuring out just the right amount of medication to a sick patient. And so, define every worldly idea or definition of blessing, even while suffering at the hands of wicked men. Peter can call you blessed by God. Yes, you will suffer for the name of Christ, but your inheritance will be more than worth it, and the Spirit is with you in your suffering. More than that, the glory of the name of Jesus is worth it. Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then in Revelation 22.13, Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That name is worthy of all things, even our suffering. And that brings us to the final point, the grand reversal in verses 17 through 19. So the last few verses of this chapter provide us with some really fantastic contrasts. The focus of these verses is to provide Hope to the Christian by giving the bigger picture of suffering. However, when you first read it, it may not seem like an encouragement. Because Peter says that it is time for judgment to begin. But this is an encouragement for the believer for three reasons. First of all, the word judgment does not mean condemnation here. The word implies a careful process of evaluation. The result of that evaluation will then lead to either judgment or blessing, God is studying, evaluating, and even testing people. The only question then will be what his careful eye will find. Well, second, Peter says that the judgment begins at the household of God. Now, again, that may not sound like a good thing to you. a contrast is coming, which will confirm this. Now, the word for household is the same word used throughout Scripture to refer to the temple of God. Now, it's not wrong to understand this as in a family term, as in the household of God, because we are God's children. But in the text, the more direct meaning here is echoing Peter's description of the church back in chapter 2. And there he called us living stones in a spiritual house or a spiritual temple. So there, among God's people, is where God is testing and refining us now. Verse 12 already mentioned the refining process God uses to purify his people. And that's what we looked at in that Zechariah 9, in Malachi 3 passage, where God's purification in those passages starts at the temple with the people. And the fires of His holiness are preparing us to make holy sacrifices to Him. And so for us, the judgment is to make us holy and to increase our love for the Lord. And as God strengthens our faith through the refining process, we become like the immovable stones of the temple which are firmly bound to Christ, the cornerstone. And in the face of persecution, God's people become just as immovable as those stones by the Spirit. Now, the third reason this is actually an encouragement is because of the contrast drawn between the unbeliever and the believer. The contrast between the Christian and the wicked are presented in two lesser to greater arguments. And the purpose of these is to show that if the first thing is true, The second will absolutely be true, and much more so even. So look at the first contrast in verse 17. This is about the judgment. God's holiness is already burning up Christians. It's not consuming you, but it is burning you right now. That is what a refining fire does. It is not gentle or calm. The fire is hot and violent. It destroys impurities, removing the dross and waste out of the metal. The Spirit is burning up everything impure in your heart right now. That is what the whole sanctification process is. God is making you holy by leading you more and more out of sin and more and more into holiness. You have obeyed the gospel by trusting in Christ. And yet you still face judgment, not condemnation. But the judgment of God, you could say the discipline of God. Now, if that is true for you, who have obeyed the gospel, how are those who do not obey the gospel going to turn out? We are being prepared now so that we will be pure and holy on judgment day. There won't be anything to consume. But believers, or but unbelievers are not being refined. And so the implication is that they are going to be consumed by the fires of God's holiness on the last day so if you think that the suffering of believers is bad now the suffering of the wicked will be far worse and the second contrast in verse 18 builds on the first one and in 18 this is a quote from proverbs 11:31 and the meaning there and the meaning here in 1st peter are the same peter is not saying that the blood of jesus barely saves people we're talking about the suffering we receive in this life for being christians The holiness of God is burning off the dross of sin in our lives. And it is a difficult process which the believer goes through. As we are sanctified, the dross is burned away. Now, the unbeliever does not suffer in the same way as the believer in this life. They are not being refined. The fire that is already sanctifying us will one day consume them. And really, here's the main idea of the quote. We struggle with the refining process under God's grace now, but it is only temporary. On the other hand, the unbeliever will face God's full wrath and condemnation on their sin into eternity. So the encouragement then is this. You may suffer at the hands of wicked men now, but soon those tables are going to be turned. The world may seek to destroy the church at every turn, but it is they who will one day be destroyed. What Peter is promising is a grand eschatological reversal. Reminiscent of Christ's promise of the first being last and the last being first, the persecuting world will in turn be fully and justly prosecuted for their wickedness. The full vindication of the saints will be brought about by the perfect holiness and justice of Christ. And that brings us to the sixth and the final command of this chapter in verse 19. And there it says, to let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, entrusting yourself to God is actually a command there. If you suffer for Jesus' name, then you must entrust or give over the care of your soul to God. So the call is to trust in his sovereign will and his care over you. And once again, this is really a command to emulate Jesus. Back in chapter 2, verse 23, Peter said that while suffering unjustly, Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the same language, language was used by Jesus at the cross. On the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that word for commit is the same meaning, commit and entrust. So Jesus entrusted his soul to the Father, even when it meant his death. And from this, we see that we are to have the same attitude of trust. Even if it leads to our death, we must entrust ourselves to God and his divine will, knowing that it will be for his glory and our good. But we should also note from this concept that the Father did not leave the Son in the tomb. That the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And Christ knew that he would rise again on the third day. He even told the disciples as much, though they didn't understand it at the time. Therefore, we can entrust our souls to God, knowing that we will be with Jesus in paradise, yes, but that he will also give us resurrected bodies for glory like Jesus's. And they will be bodies made to walk on a new earth in perfect fellowship with God. That's a glorious hope. But at the same time, we're not there yet. We still walk in this world where persecution and suffering are a present reality. But part of entrusting our souls to God's care is trusting that he will bring this grand eschatological reversal to fruition. Because Yes, you will suffer at times in this life. You cannot always trust the judges or really any leaders in this world fully. But beloved ones of God, the Lord will continue to sanctify you, drawing off the dross and making you holy. That can be a long, that can be a painful and frustrating process at times, especially when we want to see that process sped up and finished here and now. And yet even those trials, even that frustration is a brief momentary affliction in the grand scheme of redemptive history. The Spirit of God rests upon you believers you bear the name of Christ. So bear it with honor. Because you have been called to represent the King of glory. And it is only as you remember the excellence of the name to which you have been called that you will rejoice in every trial. When you inevitably suffer for righteousness' sake, remember your King. Remember the glory of the name that you bear. And if you can do that, And representing him will be the greatest honor possible in this life. Beloved, rejoice because you bear the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you that we bear the name of Jesus. It's not something we were ever worthy of on our own. Yet by your blood and through your spirit, we not only bear your name, but we are told to, uh, to be proud to rejoice in the suffering we receive for your name. Because by your blood, we have been made your beloved children. God, help us to rest in that. Help us to look to that as persecution, trials, and even just the suffering of our fallen bodies come up against us and discourage us or give us encouragement. For we bear the name of Christ and soon we'll be in glory and in paradise with him lift all these things up to you and we entrust and commit our souls and their care to you. Amen. A closing.